it was more than a decade ago when the I Quit Sugar movement took hold and swept the world. And the brains behind it is Aussie Sarah Wilson. Her cookbooks became bestsellers and her business was skyrocketing. And then Sarah decided to sell everything, everything, and donate all of the proceeds to charity. Sarah has lived an amazing, unique life, travelling and living out of one bag for eight years, becoming a leading voice and author on anxiety and hosting her own podcast, Wild. She's also taken on perhaps our greatest fight of all, climate change, and she's with us from Sydney. Kia ora, good morning, Sarah. Oh, it's wonderful to be speaking to you from here in Sydney. It is such a pleasure to be speaking with you. You know, I, I think you have had one of the most unique and interesting careers of anyone we've had on this show. And, you know, when I think about the things you've covered over the years, um, sugar, our diets, our waste culture, our convenience culture, climate change, it's like you're always one step ahead. I, I wonder how are you so trendy when it comes to choosing your subjects? <laughs> I don't know that I am. I was about to answer your question mm. about why and how I've done so much by saying I'm just old. <laughs> so, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, no, no. I think I think that um, that that negates any kind of trendiness going on. Um, I suppose I am very observant, and I am on social media, and I listen, and I'm not. I, I get a bit of a. I call it a smell when I can smell something happening. When I can feel and sense that um, the population's not happy, mm. you know, it starts to bubble You can and you can smell it, you know, it's got a bad smell. And with sugar, certainly that's what happened, anxiety, um, climate stuff, all the different projects I've moved around. I, I feel that something's bubbling. I feel a frustration. Everyone around me is just going, what do we do? How do we fix it? Yeah. And I happen to have a habit of going down very long rabbit holes. So <laughs> I, I don't think I'm particularly extraordinary except that I'm I'm, I'm prepared to go down those rabbit holes yeah. and stay down there until I emerge with information that might actually help people. So let's talk about sugar a little bit, and I'm sure you're sick to death of talking about it. So I hope you'll forgive me for asking. But take let's us go take there. us back it's to been the a little while. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's what I kind of figured. <laughs> take us back to the genesis. Take us back to the very beginning. Mm. What did you hope the I Quit Sugar movement would be? So it started out with me just playing around with my own health. I have yeah. an autoimmune disease. Many of your listeners would have would know about it or know someone with it. It's called Hashimoto's. And nobody could help me. I wasn't getting any better. So I experimented with a bunch of things. One of them was quitting sugar. And it seemed to work. After two weeks, I noticed a difference. So mm. I started looking to science of it. It was really not a thing back then. Like people would say to me, oh, you're telling us to eliminate an entire food group. And I'm like, sugar's not a food group. Yeah. Um, and it was met with a lot of resistance. But really my aim, I put all my information after about a year of research into an ebook. So I paid $100 to go and learn how to write an ebook on an online course. <laughs> and um, I thought if I sell 100 of these things, yeah. hey, it'll cover my costs. And anyway, it went on to be an Amazon bestseller within a couple of weeks. Yeah. So my aim was 100 ebooks and look what happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing how it connected with people, right? And it just yeah. felt like the right book in the right moment. But it sort of morphed into something that you hadn't really either anticipated or hoped for. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, I sort of did everything back to front. So I did the ebook, and then the traditional publishers came and said, look, you know, 
let's do it as a print book. Mm. And then that turned into a New York Times bestseller and, and ended up being sold in 52 countries. What was the secret sauce, do you think? Why, yeah. why did it become such a behemoth? I think it arrived at a time when people were also, when I first started out, no, but um, gradually people were prepared to listen to also the political message about yeah. it because people went, why have we got so much sugar in our diet? Yeah. Why am I so addicted? And I started pulling apart all the biological and evolutionary reasons. And it's like, well, how come we've got so much today? And, of course, it is the food industry. So I think the world was ripe for understanding that, you know. Like I reckon if I was a few years earlier, and, in fact, I did cop this at first. Oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist, you know, which is funny hearing that word now. But, yeah. It's it's like people had an appropriate level of scepticism. Correct. Yeah, right. I think that was it. I think we were fed up. Also, autoimmune diseases and a whole range of health conditions were just going up and up, which have got direct links to sugar consumption. So I think it was a message that people were like, this could be the missing piece. Yeah. It's amazing what it became from that relatively humble ebook to a New York Times bestseller in in the printed version, and then a business that employed 25 staff. And here's Sarah Wilson on top of the world. She says, you know what? I'm done with this. I never wanted this to be a big business. I never wanted to be making heaps of money out of this. I want out. Tell me about that decision. (laughs) Yeah, that was a bizarre one. I'll try to say it reasonably speedily. So when I first started to do quite well, I got an accountant because that was a grown-up thing to do in my Mm. mid-30s. And Harry, my accountant, said, what are your financial goals? And I said, I don't do financial (laughs) goals. I don't care. He said, no, make something up. And I said, well, in five years' time, I would like to have made enough money to live off the basic wage or sort of, you know, the average wage, I should say, until I'm 94. Right. And he said, well, what will you do when you reach that goal? I said, well, I'll give it all away. I'll give everything excess away. So five years to the day after running the I Quit Sugar digital business with the staff in a beautiful office here in Sydney, he came to me and went, you've hit the goal. And I went, all right. And so I decided to sell the business and, you know, there was a couple of different things. I, you know, gave the option to some of the staff members, blah, blah. Yeah. It was a really long process and it took several years to sell off all yeah. the assets because there was digital books, there was office furniture, there was the digital <laughs> component, there yeah. was the recipes, the photography. And I gave everything to charity and continue to. So I then sort of every six months I set up a charity project and used the money to sort of get awareness of the project and get other people donating. And what I do is I match dollar for dollar. So I do projects where I get the community to donate and I match dollar for dollar and it just, you know, doubles the amount. Yeah. So that's that's so amazing. Went off and did other things. See, okay. I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to human nature, right? I, I feel like everyone, when they're not very wealthy, Says like, yeah, if I got wealthy, I'd want to, <laughs> so you know, I'd, I'd be into effective altruism and I'd give my money away and things. But then as they start to get a bit wealthier, their values just slowly start to change. And it's like you resisted that. Was there any part yes. of you that actually thought, you know what, Harry, is it? I, I said that mm-hmm. I just wanted to be able to, you know, get by on the average wage until I'm 94. Let's actually, that yeah, exactly. <laughs> actually, I'd really like a helicopter, you know? Yeah. No, I was, I think I grew up. Well, I grew up in a family that had no money and we yeah. grew up 
in the country on a subsistence living property. I was the editor of Cosmo at a very young age. I was 29. It was the New Zealand yeah. edition as well that I edited. And I even then resisted it. I didn't have a car. I rode a bike, you know, to the big head office and I wore secondhand clothing and I didn't even I own high heels, me. right? Like I, we all think of that as a very glamorous kind yeah. of role, you know, like a devil wears Prada situation. There was yeah. a lot of smoke and mirrors, like <laughs> nobody really knew. But um, yeah, I resisted, you know, people used to want to give you handbags. I never owned a handbag in that whole time and to this day I don't I own a little satchel but that's it yeah so yeah for me I suppose I also when I had that sort of big breakdown at 34 that mm. prompted me to make this commitment I um I'd got really unwell and I also have mental various mental illnesses yeah I've had them from a young age and of course I mean, we might get to this, but I wrote a book about that. So it's no big secret that I have bipolar. And so I, I'd i seen the depths, the darknesses, yeah. and I'd seen how um, money didn't make it much better. I realised mm. how much money I needed to be able to get by and be happy. And I'm certainly not living on any kind of breadline right now. No, no. But I, st- I don't own a car. I ride a bike everywhere. I rent my apartment. All of my furniture is secondhand. I buy- You don't own it? Do you, do- you don't own an apartment? Oh, I own an investment place. Right. But I don't. The one I'm living in is just a. Yeah. You, you know, just rent it. An apartment in a block of six. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've never. I guess you know. I think it was Walt Whitman said, "Tone your needs down so low, such that you enjoy the sun and the moon, or something like that." Mm. It was far more poetic than that. But I think I grasped that in my thirties. Yeah. I realised that the more money I got, the the more stress was created mm. and I actually get more fun out of or, or more enjoyment out of, I don't know, putting two fingers up to the system and doing things differently. And as soon as I shake things up, yeah, really good stuff starts to happen, you know? So I've come to trust that, you know, that whole yeah. jumping into the unknown. And if you're hanging on to a whole bit of material wealth and houses and belongings and I don't know, a shoe collection, yeah. you can't jump. You know, and so what do we want out of this life? Is it to be stuck and to accumulate and get suffocated by all our things or is it to be free and to have flow? And I think um, a certain amount of money certainly is required, to, you know. You want enough to- money to not have to worry about money, right? That's right. Yeah. But my bar would be lower. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> oh I start worrying about money, you know, if I get much closer to the to the poverty line than yeah. most people. But um I also don't like the idea of living in a world of um inequity and I champion it and it's not an empty um chant. Mm. It's something that I really believe. I feel revolting thinking about me having this much money and somebody mm. down the road really struggling. If you were queen of the world right now, you could snap oh your fingers gosh. and stuff would yeah. happen. President of the human race, what would you do? What would be what would be day one, you get in at your desk, 8.30 in the morning, what's the top priority? Oh, don't tempt me. Do you know what? I use that phrase all the time. If I was if I was president of the world, <laughs> um, I have lots of pretty um pretty scary edicts that come out of my mouth sometimes. I think I would, I mean, speaking to wages and so on, a universal basic income um, I think would be awesome. And I think also having a structure where the richest person um, can only earn a maximum of 10 times 
the amount of the the lowest wage. Interesting. And that yeah. actually does play out in certain Scandinavian countries. They've got that structure yeah, set up. Yeah, right. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would, I, I think that would be a really good starting point. Um, I would then tax the fossil fuel industry super heavily yeah. and appropriately, and put all of that money into electrifying the entire planet so that we have a grid that works. Do you feel at all optimistic about our progress with climate change? Optimistic, I would say I'm hopeful. And um, a wonderful writer, Rebecca Solnit, she's written uh, quite a bit about hope. And she says that hope is optimism plus action. You need the action. Mm. Otherwise, optimism is as destructive as pessimism because essentially you're saying, hey, it'll be all right. I don't have to do anything. And pessimism is you know, we're all going to the toilet. Why bother doing anything? It's, it's the same outcome. Yeah, right. Um, so optimism, no, I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful, but only while ever I'm doing everything I can. And what's really interesting, Jack, is like the fight. I don't really like using that word, but essentially that's what it is. The mm. fight to kind of campaign on climate issues and do everything I can um, to mobilise and educate and and do whatever do whatever I can mm. is something that actually has created the structure for meaning in my life. My life feels richer than it ever has, and it's dialed down my anxiety. I know that sounds weird, but yeah. most climate psychologists, and that is actually a legit realm these days, say that the best salve for climate anxiety is climate action. So, yeah, that's sort of that's my type of hope. I, I think this is the thing that that makes you such a unique and special person you have found a way to communicate with people whether it's through stories whether it's through your own experiences through your communication that you are able to connect with people and affect positive change and I wonder if you reflect over your career what have you learned about the best ways to help create a mass movement my goodness, you asked some good questions. That's a great one. I think sometimes what I do is I actually stand back a fair bit to see where the gap is. Where mm. is the bit in the dialogue where we're not addressing the pain, the real deep collective pain, you know? So, you know, with the climate movement, for instance, it's the fear of of things, you know? And so I try to go into that space. What will the world look like? And then I try to go, well, what, what could the world look like? The thing if I was to sum it up into a pithy statement, it would be to create change, you've got to make the new way sexier than the status quo. So there's no point making it look like we're all going to self-flagellate with some soggy cabbage leaves, right? Yeah. We, we can't look miserable as we fight the climate or we go up against the sugar industry and try to get our health on track. We've got to actually make it fun. So with the sugar movement, the food was colourful. I turned everything into sort of almost an adventure. And with the climate movement, you know, I don't have a big old whine about riding a bike and I don't um, get self-conscious about every photo that anyone sees me and I'm wearing the same clothes. Yeah, I'm out and loud and proud showing how easy my life is because I don't have to worry about going shopping and I get places faster because I'm on a bike yeah. and I love it. Yeah, And I genuinely love living this way. It's not like I'm making a big sacrifice. Every now and then I do think, gosh, it'd be so easy if I... So I was one of those people that didn't sort all my recycling <laughs> so methodically. And I could just run out the door. You know, sometimes yeah, yeah, I do yeah. think that. Yeah. But um, the pro- what else are you going to do? 
Most yeah. people are bored. I'd rather be in action doing physical kind of engaged stuff. Humans like to engage and use our bodies. And if you look at people who have got outdoor jobs, look at their physiques. They're not going to the gym, <laughs> but they just look really, you know, they look like humans are meant to look. Yeah. Mm. Hey, um, we, we have to wrap up, I'm afraid. It is such a pleasure speaking with you. I could continue this conversation all day, but thank you so much <laughs> for giving us your time. My pleasure. It's, a, it's lovely to chat with New Zealanders.